Good morning. This is lesson four in our study on hope and change God's way. And this message, and actually the next three, will focus on our hope of heaven. So I want to begin by talking about why the subject of heaven is important to us. Heaven is the believer's hope, as we know from uh, Scripture. Certainly, we see that of the Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, where it says that every Old Testament saint saw that it was not a reward in this life, but it was a reward that they would have after death that they were seeking, and therefore they did not seek an earthly reward. They died without receiving the promise, but they had hope in the future. That is also true for the New Testament Christian as well. And we are commanded on numerous occasions to fix our hope on heaven. That is, we are to live our lives with a heavenward look because it will bear very much on the kinds of lives that we live. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, Therefore, gird, get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think there is four times in 1 Timothy that Paul talks about setting your hope upon heaven and the things that are yet to come. And the reality is all of us are going to die. That's just, that's just pretty clear. And some of us, it's clearer than others, but it's going to happen. And what we, where we go when we die is the most important question that we will ever settle. And so heaven is a very timely thing for all of us. And especially when we realize that if we don't choose heaven, then our only option is hell. So we have two destinies before us, and heaven is certainly the one that we would want to focus our attention upon. And then when you think about, I've taken the wording of that sentence behind me, if it's there, and I've turned it around because it seems to me that it's our, it's our view of heaven that really determines our, our way of looking at this life. Over and over, Peter talks about us and New Testament texts talk about us as strangers and pilgrims. If we are citizens of heaven, and if we're believers, we are. If we are citizens of heaven, then that gives us a whole new orientation about this life and how it is that we are to live it. And then there's just the reality. There is so much baloney being peddled out there about heaven. I can't think of a subject that is more riddled with distortion and error. It, it's like... A, a Santa Claus list on steroids. And, 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 and everybody is thinking about, here's what I like to do on earth, and heaven must be more and better of that. And, it's, it, and, and so we're really twisting our view of heaven in terms of our own earthly orientation, and that's not the way it ought to work. We ought to be reshaping our thoughts about this life based upon the realities of heaven. I didn't put this in, but I should have. And that is, this life 
is really not reality. The eternal things are realities. And we live out this life in light of the realities that are in heaven awaiting for us. Then I say, except for funerals, heaven is something we don't talk about enough. We really don't. I'll talk about that in, in in a minute in the next slide. But the worst part of it is, when we go to funerals, they say it wrong. There is no greater place of distress for me than a funeral, I hate to say this, but a funeral that I'm not preaching and and one of my true brothers in Christ is not preaching and, and you walk away with a distinct impression that every single person in that audience is going to that wonderful land beyond. I remember going to a funeral with a good friend of mine and he said to me afterwards, it's not what he said that's so problematic. It's what he didn't say. And oftentimes you look out in that crowd and you will see people that you are certain, so far as you can humanly know, that they have never trusted in Jesus Christ. If they don't hear at a funeral that there are two destinies, heaven and hell, then in effect you're greasing the slats for their eternal demise. Why is the subject of heaven ignored? Uh, I've got some statistics here. By the way, this slide, I'm going to look. Oh, it came out good. Somehow my my computer told me that this was not working well and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I love it when it comes out like that. Technology is so wonderful. Anyway, what I want you to know is I have been reading. I haven't finished Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, uh, but there are some very, very helpful things there. There are probably things that I will disagree with, but in the early part of his book, he makes a point of, of looking at the systematic theologies that are well known and showing how little emphasis is placed upon heaven. Now, I need to pause there for one second and say, when I read Alcorn's book, there are some things I haven't thought about, some of those I'm going to embrace and some I won't, and there are other things I have thought about, so when I say something with respect to heaven, I really don't know whether he thought of it first or I did. If it's wrong, he did. But but I, I want to give him credit in the sense that I, I am looking and I am influenced by, by uh, what Alcorn is saying. I did not do this count, so I'm going to blame him if you don't like the, the page counts on, on what he finds out. I'm, I'm taking this from his book, pages 8 and 9. The other thing I think you have to take note of with, with uh, Randy Alcorn is he makes a substantial different, uh, distinction between the intermediate state, meaning where Christians go when they die immediately, and the ultimate or the eternal state. What I haven't seen from him yet is what he makes of the millennium. So you really have three different things that you have to come to grips with. Where Christians go the minute they die, what do you do with the millennium, and what do you do then with what we might call the eternal state, heaven as we think of it in the end. He distinguishes very critically between the, the intermediate state and the, uh, the ultimate state, and that's going to be reflected in his numbers. But... Reinhold Niebuhr, in his uh, theology, The Nature and Destiny of Man, note the title, The Nature and Destiny of Man, never mentions heaven once. <laughs> that is, there's, no, there's, there's not even one page devoted to the subject of heaven. That's really interesting when you're talking about the destiny of man. I would have expected a few pages. William Shedd, in his three-volume 
dogmatic theology has 87 pages devoted to eternal punishment, or a.k.a. hell, heaven gets two pages. Kind of interesting. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his 900-page work, Great Doctrines of the Bible, gives two pages to the eternal state and the new earth. Again, he may have some pages devoted to the intermediate state that are not mentioned here. Louis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, 737 pages long. I'm sure you're all writing this down so you can read those theologies and get this down. 38 pages on cremation. 40 pages on baptism and communion. 15 pages on the intermediate state. Two pages on hell. One page on the eternal state. That's kind of, kind of interesting, I think to take note of that and to ask ourselves, why is it that there's so little emphasis on heaven when the scripture really makes a big point of that? In fact, I made a point this morning of going through, whizzing through Paul's epistles. And apart from Philemon, which you know is a very short book and has a very specific topic in mind, that's the only known epistle of Paul. I'm setting Hebrews aside for the moment. The only known epistle of Paul where you don't really find any reference to heaven. And Galatians, if you work really hard, you could see it, but it's not emphatic. But again, that's a problem-oriented book. The rest of Paul's epistles are heavy in terms of his emphasis on, on heaven and the hope that we have in heaven. All right, so those, uh, one reason why we don't talk a lot about heaven is because the, the books that we read that shape our theology may not be talking enough about it. But there's another one, and that is prosperity. It, it's when you are living well. Have you noticed? When you are living well, you're not so inclined to think about heaven as when things are going badly. And for us in the Western world, and in particular us in the United States, we've been living well, folks. So I was thinking about this in the light of, of a couple of possibilities. I, one of the books that I have on heaven is written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Can, can you, knowing what you know about her, can you not see how heaven would be a blissful thought? And, and you know, you, you can imagine the perspective from which she comes. Now, supposing that you were reading a book on heaven by a young man who has been engaged and he's going to be getting married in a month. Is he going to look at heaven a little differently? Yeah, he's not going to say, even so, Lord, come quickly, I'll tell you that. He's going to say, hold your horses. And, and then think about somebody who's gotten a scholarship uh, at a prestigious university, and they're going to be going in, in the fall. You know, those people who are really looking forward to something on earth have a way of not focusing as much as they should, usually, on the things of heaven. So our prosperity often, I think, uh, directs us uh, in the wrong direction as we think about the future. When you think about people around the world who are suffering persecution, as we'll see, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, they think a lot more about heaven than we do. And you can understand why that would be true. People who are, are suffering from a, a serious and especially painful illness, they're thinking about heaven more than we are often. 
and that's not necessarily good. Politics. I'm only going to just ride the horse for a short little run here, but I got to say this. In our society, government has taken the place of God. Government has taken the place of God. And, 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 and it's not in God we trust, it's in our government that we trust. And I was thinking about that in the light of the Old Testament. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them out of a land where people didn't pray for rain. And the reason was, they had a river running through it. And all you had to do was just... Uh, as the scripture says, just kick your foot, just make that little irrigation ditch open up, and the water just ran. You didn't, you didn't pray for rain. It was gonna, you knew the water was there. When God sent the Israelites into the promised land, they had to dry farm. And that means they didn't have crops if God didn't give them rain. And, and their, their cattle did not produce unless God gave them fertility. They did not produce and become numerous unless God blessed them in terms of the bearing of children. They had enemies all about them. Israel was not a, a large nation. Their survival depended upon God giving them protection from their enemies. So when you think about the ancient Israelites, they were trusting God, or they should have been trusting God. Sometimes they were trusting idols, but they were trusting something other than government to give them the safety, the protection, the health. They looked to God. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 28 is all about, isn't it? It says, basically, if you are faithful to me, here are the things that I'm going to give you. And if you're not, here's what you're going to get instead. So I fear that we perhaps live in a time when we are looking for government to do things that only God can and does do, ultimately. I have to giggle to myself with this volcano erupting and, and all of a sudden, you know, number one, all this global warning, warming stuff. And God may be turning on the refrigerator, folks, with just the ash that's going to turn off the sun's rays. And, and things like uh, the, the disappearance of, of honeybees and whatever... God can turn off the rains. He can turn off the crops. He can turn up or down the heat. And people are going to have to start paying attention to who's really in control. Uh, not on your notes, but let me mention a couple of other elements that I think bear upon us as in, in terms of why we don't spend more of our energy and our thoughts thinking about heaven. One of those, the fourth, is the passing of time. The passing, I should say, of much time. Now, this argument is, is a sort of a twist on 2 Peter chapter 3. And in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's the unbeliever and the false teachers who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Because, in judgment, in judgment. Because, you know, we look down through the corridors of time and we see, man, it's been a long time and no great change has happened. That same mindset can become the mindset of the Christian who says, where is the promise of his blessings? Look at how long things have gone on the way they are, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. So the passing of time may not be helpful for some. Then there's the fear of death. If in reality one recognizes that there is life after death, there is an eternity after death, the unbeliever really doesn't want to ponder that. And if you open the door to thinking about heaven, 
you've opened the door to thinking about not heaven slash hell. And so some people just want, don't want to go there. Why do people not plan their funerals? Why do people not make arrangements for their death? One of the reasons is because they don't want to think about it because of what may lay ahead. The fear of death keeps us from thinking, strangely enough, about heaven. And the last one I want to mention is what I call satanic distortion. If you think about it, Satan got tossed out of his own version of heaven, Ezekiel chapter 28 in particular. Satan gets thrown out. Do you think he wants other people to enjoy what he's lost? Is it any surprise to us then that after he's thrown out of his Eden in Ezekiel chapter 28, he comes down and he distorts with Eve what God's paradise is like. In other words, he gets her to the place where she is not content with heaven, paradise, as God has made it. So when we think wrong thoughts about heaven and hell, it may well be Satan himself who is the engineer of those thoughts, trying to lead us, in a sense, to follow in his steps of destruction. Now, let's talk for a minute about my approach in this lesson and actually in the next three. Initially, I was going to do one message on the hope of heaven. And then I got guilt-ridden by Randy Elkhorn talking about how little we talk about it. And I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe one sermon isn't quite enough. And, and, and I look also at the ways in which uh, others deal with the subject uh, of heaven, uh, Alcorn among them, and, and they all have their, their own sort of twist as to how they come about it. But I'll tell you what my preference is. And, and that is, my preference is to come at it from the standpoint of progressive revelation. And that is, I would rather see what God has to say about heaven from Genesis and then see how that develops all the way through Scripture until you get to Revelation. We know from Revelation 22... 1 and 2. We know that, that, that the eternal state is going to be garden-like, is it not? With a tree of life and so on. So the scriptures have brought those two together. But it's very helpful, I think, to see how God develops that thought. Or about the Abrahamic covenant and God's promises to Israel. Or the teaching about hell. Or, or many other things. My preference is to come at it from the standpoint of, of biblical revelation and say, how does God start the conversation about heaven? And how then does he develop that conversation until you get to revelation? That led me to four messages that I know of. Now, I'm not going to promise to keep four because you know how things happen with me. But, but uh, this lesson will be on paradise lost. I, I don't see how we can't gain the, the sort of major points about heaven and, I must say, about hell from the account of the fall of Satan and from the account of the fall of man in Genesis uh, 1 through 3. So that's the, the focus of the message for today. I want to talk then about a, a, a taste of heaven that comes down in terms of how God chooses to relate and dwell in the midst of his people by means of the tabernacle and the temple. So what foreshadowing do we have 
of, of, of heaven uh, based on what we have from the law. Now, I'm, I'm coming at that from the standpoint of Hebrews. Remember, Hebrews tells us that there is a master plan, a master model, and it's in heaven. And that what we see on earth is a replica of that. So if the real model is heaven and the replica is here, then it's clear, and, and the, the scriptures make it clear, that the tabernacle and the temple were a part of that replica but because it's a replica, it points toward the ultimate model, which is in heaven. Second message. Third message, heaven came down. That's the kingdom of heaven in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say and do that helps us better understand what heaven is going to be like? And then finally, uh, the fourth one will be uh, the heaven for which we still wait, as it were, the heaven of the apostles. What is it they add to this matter of heaven? Of course, that includes the book of Revelation. So that'll be the four messages if you uh, choose to endure. And I would be delighted if the Lord came and interrupted that series, but, but otherwise, that's kind of the plan. Now, let's talk about the, the prototype of heaven that we see in uh, in the Garden of Eden. I, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, and I hope uh, when I have, as I have more days, I think about it longer. But I am fascinated by the two creation accounts that you find in Genesis one and two. In Genesis one one through two three, you find the first creation account, and you have these elements. You have the element of going from chaos to cosmos, that is, chaos to order. Is that not right? And the way in which God does that is by separating. He separates the waters from the land. He separates the heaven from the earth. He separates light from darkness. So he's making distinctions, differences uh, there. You see the prominent uh, repetition of the words, and God said... And then, in effect, whether it says it or not, and it was so, correct? Which is very interesting when you get to Genesis chapter 3. Hath God said, you know, as though somehow God's word is unreliable? We just had a whole chapter of, and God said, and it happened, like he said. So when God, when God says to him, in the day of you, that you eat of it, you will surely die. And here's Satan's sin. It ain't so. It ain't so. And God said, prominent in the, in the first account. And then that, that statement, it was good. It is good. God saw it and it is good. Now, look at the, the second account, and that's what I had uh, Ray read. In this, in this way, you're looking at creation from a different point of view. It's not not a contradictory account. It's a complementary account. But it has to do with the perspective from which you you approach it. Uh, I talked about reading a book on heaven from somebody who's at the prime of their life and has expectations uh, awaiting them in this life versus, uh, uh, let's say, a John Erickson Tata who's got all kinds of adversity and affliction. When you think about this second uh, chapter, it's really dealing with things that aren't good and, and that God fixes. And it goes like this. Something is missing or not good. There's no shrub or plant 
This is all 2-5. There's no rain and there's no man to till it. You're saying, man, it's going to be tough to have a garden in chapter 3 unless we fix this thing in chapter 2, right? No rain. No cultivatable plants, in effect. No garden. And no man to till it. And then at the end of chapter 2, we've got one more missing item, which is not good by God's definition. And that is Adam's alone. Adam's alone. And in fact, you get that sense that when God uh, parades all of these uh, creatures by him two by two, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to begin to say, you know, two, 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 and Adam's thinking to himself, one, one, one. There's something missing here in this picture. And God says, it's not good. And so what God does is supply that need. So what you see in, in chapter 2 is God creating in such a way that he perfectly meets the needs that are there. Now, certainly that bears upon chapter 3, where you have this question raised about the, the goodness of God and the adequacy of his provision. Is there anything which God has not created that is good, and has he not solved every issue that is not good by the creation of man, by the provision of the rivers to water, because the flood's not come until chapter 6, and, and now you've got man there to cultivate there's, there's all of these things that come together. And so I see the adequacy and the richness of God's provision in chapter 2 in the way that it is, uh, it is presented to us. So God creates the perfect solution. And then you see the test, as it were. Something now, something in the garden is not good. Is that not true? Something in the garden is not good to eat. To eat. We know that from all human perception, it really is good. From a human point of view, apart from the word of God, you would say this is good. It was a delight to look at. This wasn't some ugly piece of fruit. This was beautiful fruit. It was fruit that tasted good. It was desirable to eat, Eve realized. I think it was. I don't think it was bitter. I think it was great tasting fruit. And it was desirable to make one wise. That is, it would produce this knowledge of good and evil. So from a human perspective, it looked good. God said it isn't good to eat. So we put that one stipulation on it, and of course that became the test. And then you have Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall, where men, where Adam and Eve rebel against God, and bring about the consequences. And the consequences then, in my opinion, are hell-like, just as paradise is heaven-like. So let's talk about what paradise was like, uh, given the account that we have uh, for in Genesis. And again, the, the words that are given to us in Revelation 22, 1 and 2, that liken paradise to the garden. It is a designated place. That is, heaven is a particular place that God sets apart for blessing. Would you agree with me? So that they, when, when they sin, they are kicked out of that place. Uh, but they still, of course, can, can go about anywhere else except 
into that, that garden. It is, a, it is made up of people who are created for blessing. He creates the place, as it were, and now it needs people. It needs a population. And so God creates Adam and Eve, and he brings them, he brings Adam into that place of his blessing. And it is a blessed work that he is given to do. No hammocks in heaven that I know of. Heaven is not a place, it is not a retirement center uh, with a golf course and and whatever. It, It is not. It is a place where you go to work because work is a blessing and a joy. There are a lot of people who die very shortly after they retire because non-work is not really a blessing. You know, they need something to do. Heaven is a place of work. They, in the process of this, Adam and Eve represent, reflect the image of God as they cultivate, as they keep or protect or guard or whatever they're doing, and as they rule over creation, as God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So they have this work to do. It is a bountiful table, uh, great food. I say green because remember, it is not until Genesis 9 that meats are to be eaten. So you have vegetarian animals and you have vegetarian people uh, here, but you have this great menu. I couldn't help but think about this as I was looking at that and thinking about the, the plentitude and, and the magnificence of the food that's offered there. <laughs> I've been in some places. Have you ever been on one of those cruise ships? You know, where they've got this bounty of food. Oh, oh, please. It's just, you know how it is. And then I've been to prison. I've been in a prison. All right. And, and, and I remember as we were going through the line... They had several stations along the way, and, and, and my, my friend who was the director of prison fellowship for Texas says to me, have you ever noticed how they got these different places and every one of them tastes the same? I mean, you know, it's just like generic stuff. That's not what heaven is like. Heaven has this great, bountiful table, as it were, a veritable banquet that is placed before them. If you look down at, at, at number six, with this variety of choices, all of these options, these trees are all there with their own beauty, with their own flavors and provision. What a wonderful bounty is provided for them. And then you have the element of beauty, pleasing to the eyes. You see that in Ezekiel chapter uh, 28 when, you, when it has this description of, of Satan and, and the beauty uh, in terms of all the stones and the, and the glory and whatever uh, that he had. There, heaven is a place of great beauty. It is a place, I would say, of wondrous harmony. I'm thinking of harmony certainly between Adam and Eve at that moment uh, in history before the fall, but I'm also thinking about harmony with the animal world. Now, something changed at the fall. Would you agree with me? Uh, but, but remember that the description of heaven is going to be the lion will lay down with the lamb and whatever, that that hostility and enmity which exists between creatures in the animal world is going to go away. 
My, my folks were telling me the other day, they were looking out the window at the lake, and there was a bald ego up, uh, eagle up in this tree, and there was a duck out on the lake, and that eagle decided that roast duck was on his menu. And he finally wore that duck out until he just plucked him out of the water. He, he dove more times than he could come up with another one, and, and it was all over. That's because creation, as it were, the animal kingdom is feeding off itself. It was not that way. And there was a harmony between man and the animal creation. I mean, I don't think that, that Adam was in, in a cage with bars around when the animals were paraded by him. He'd have to worry about him. Lions weren't hungry for meat. They said, look. You know, it was like broccoli. What do they care about it? So... Anyway, actually, I like broccoli. But th- there was this, this, this companionship and this harmony between men and the animal and the plant world that I think you see, even to the point of communication. Now, I, I'm not sure how far I want to go down this trail, but all I'm saying to you is Eve did not say to herself, well, what do you know, a talking snake? As though this was the biggest surprise in her life. Here is communication between a human being, and an animal. And seemingly, no big surprise. So there is this this element of harmony within nature that I think you see that is there. And I believe that it is safe to say that's a pattern probably for eternity to come. There is, number eight, blissful ignorance. Uh, Oh, I should say blissful ignorance. Well, ignorance is not bad either, folks. <laughs> when you think about the knowledge of good and evil, it, it is that too. But blissful innocence. Here they are. They are naked before each other and before God. And there is no shame. There is no sense of guilt. There is nothing to hide and nothing for which to be ashamed. What, what a wonderful thing that was and is. Then there's this element of learning and knowledge. Now, I, I've, been, I've been pondering the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for a long time. I think you have to ask the question when you're thinking about heaven, do you, as it were, when you go through the gates of heaven, do you punch in, so to speak, your memory card, like I gave my thumb drive to Bruce, do you punch in your thumb drive and all of a sudden now God fills your database And you become omniscient as God is? I'm not willing to go down the line that says that we are omniscient. Maybe we are, but but it seems to me God is still going to be God and creatures are going to be creatures. So do we learn what we learn instantly in one big download? I'm sorry for the computeries. Or do we get it bit by bit. (laughs) Uh, Do we get it a little bit at a time? Now, the reason I say that is that I I really believe that heaven is going to be, as it were, a progressive revelation of things and and that we're going to see more and more. Now, I'm going to go down this trail and listen to these words about Solomon, who was the wisest man uh, who ever lived. And this comes from 1 Kings chapter 4. And in particular, I'll start at verse 33. He produced manuals on botany describing every kind of plant from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on walls. He also produced manuals on biology describing animals, birds, insects, and fish. 
Now, here is a man who has been given uncanny genius and wisdom. And can you see him, as it were? Suppose that God had put Solomon in the Garden of Eden, and he looks at this tree and he says to God, this apple tree is fascinating. God says, oh, I got lots of apples. You know, and he starts telling him all the different varieties. And you begin to explore all of the wisdom and the genius that God has built into that one tree, that one kind of fruit. How many years would it take us to understand infinitely the design that God has put into that? And then you move to the next plant and the next plant. And all I'm saying is Solomon is in a sense a hint of the way it may be. And we may be going through eternity saying, wow, I never thought about this. Now, take that and roll it over into history. And all of a sudden we get to go back. I believe there's instant replays in heaven. I, I confess. I just think that we're going to be able to go back and see all of these events replayed. But we're going to get to see them, I believe, in all of their dimensions. And, and in ways, for instance, here's Job. Steve was talking about, uh, you know, a relative who'd passed away and you're wondering where they are or you fear that they aren't in heaven. I believe that when we get to heaven and we understand God's working in every individual's life, we're going to say, God did it again. He did it right. We're not going to wring our hands and, and, and think, oh, oh, this is horrible. It won't be. When we understand it from God's point of view, we're going to see more and more of that. Job, I can't wait. I hope I get there before Job. I can't wait to watch Job's face when God says to him, Job, come over here. Do you remember that stuff that went on in your life? There's a few things I didn't tell you about that. All of a sudden, Job's now, Job now looks at his suffering through the eyes of God. We get to see that in the book of Job, folks. He didn't read the book of Job so far as we know. We, he gets to look at that and all of a sudden he may now look at all of that adversity and say, praise God. Praise God for that. I believe that heaven is going to be this endless time where every day you get up, something more, you're either going to learn something different or you're going to learn something more about what you've already learned about. And you're going to say, this just gets better and better. And it, it's like this infinite amount of, of knowledge, all of which exalts God and shows us how little we know. And yet we say, I can't wait for tomorrow. What's on the agenda for then? And I believe that that will go on for eternity. Number 10, it's a place of perfection, a place of perfection. Now you got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there is nothing wrong with that tree. If you don't eat it, eat the fruit, right? Nothing wrong. God put it there. And even that tree has its purpose. Because now you have all of these different trees that men may eat of, but, but the way that Moses puts this, this together through the, the, the working of the Spirit is you see the middle of the garden and here are these two trees side by side. That's what it looks like. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And you can just see Adam and Eve looking there. This tree, this tree you got a choice to make. One tree means life. 
One tree means death, a choice to be made. Intimate fellowship with God. When you look at this account, and I realize that I'm reading somewhat between the lines, but when you see them after they've sinned in the cool of the day, one gets the distinct impression that the garden is the place where God comes to walk with his people. Do you not? With Adam and Eve. That he walks with them and that is the time when they have fellowship with him. In my mind, my friends, that is where they should have gotten their knowledge. They should have gotten their knowledge by having intimate communion with God. Now, when you go to Colossians chapter 1, you remember what it says about Christ? In him, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside. If you want to know, if you want to be wise, where would you go? I'd go to Jesus. I wouldn't go to some blasted tree. I don't care how good it looks. And in the process of learning that, you have intimate communion with God. I believe that that is what was there. One more thing. I see grace. I see grace. What did Adam and Eve do to enjoy the benefits of the garden? Nothing. Is that not right? They didn't do anything. They didn't earn it. They didn't work hard outside the garden and then one day God gave them the tickets to get in to to, to Eden. God made the garden for them. He made them for the garden and he put them there so that all of those benefits and blessings are the result of God's goodness. Now, you want to talk about their decision to eat of the tree? When they get kicked out of the garden, I'll lay that one on them. Yes, it's what they did. Their works got them expelled. Their works did not get them in. So I see all of those as elements of heaven. And what I would say is, I think that that when you come to the Pentateuch, as I understand it, it's God laying out the broad outline of all that's going to be revealed in Scripture and in the coming of Christ and whatever. You've got the broad points of your outline. And so I see this account of, of the Garden of Eden and I say to myself, you know what? Everything that's really important to know about heaven is there. And when I start going down the Thule road of speculation, it's very likely that I'm going to start losing sight of the main points like these. And I'm going to get involved in something that I really probably don't need to know. God's going to fill in details, granted. But this is the core of the outline, I think, of what heaven is like. Now, let's just briefly talk about heaven's counterpart or hell's prototype. When you look at the fall, you see in in, in Ezekiel 28, you see Satan's paradise. He has a place of authority and rule. He is a person with great beauty. He has his Eden, as it were, and I'm not sure I can understand and explain all of that. But he rebels against God and he's cast out. That, of course, is a picture and a prototype of what happens in the fall. So that in the fall of man, they choose death rather than life. They choose disobedience rather than obedience. They, they gained knowledge, but they lost their innocence. They should have gotten their knowledge from God. 
they suffer the reversal of many of the benefits of Eden in the production of fruit. It seems to me that what you have is this joyful occupation. <laughs> Can you imagine? Those of you who have green thumbs, I don't. But, but Jeanette's always out there working in the garden. You know what she spends a lot of her time doing? Oh, come on, admit it. <laughs> Your garden is no different than ours. It's those blasted weeds. Can you imagine the joy of having a garden without weeds? Oh, man, it, what a glory that would be. But you go from that to the sweat of your brow. Now it's hard labor. And friends, I don't gather that what's on the menu outside the garden is the same thing that was in the menu inside the garden. So it seems to me like you're getting, uh, you're getting a whole different fare. In the bearing of children... We don't really know what would have happened before the fall on that count. What we do know is it becomes a painful thing. Labor in producing fruit, labor in producing children, and enmity with the animal world. Not only is there enmity between the woman and the snake, there is going to be enmity now between man and the creation in all of those things. Those are the things that come about as the result of the fall. They fear God now and they hide from him rather than enjoy intimate fellowship with him. So what do we say about all those things? I believe this is the essence of what we need to know about heaven. We, we will go further, but this tells us really the core of what we ought to be thinking about in terms of heaven and what it will be like. Secondly, when the Bible speaks here in, in this account, both of Satan's fall and of man's fall in the garden, heaven is, is always, all, I, I better back up, here it's always, but throughout the Bible, heaven is almost never spoken of apart from hell. You really need to understand eternity in terms of those two realities. And that's what bugs me about most funerals. You go to a funeral and it's somehow like, you know, hell is off the table. And now we're just going to talk about the bliss of heaven. That's not the way Jesus told it. That's not the way Paul told it. Whenever you see the bliss of heaven close by, you're going to see the dread of hell. Because that's just the way it is, friends. You either have the destiny of eternity with God or the destiny of eternity without Him. And you dare not talk to people about the blessing without telling them about the alternative. It's just got to be there. Some people try to get away from it by just saying, well, when we die, it's all over. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, is it appointed unto men once to die? And then the judgment. Eternity is certainly going to follow, and it's going to be one of those two destinies. And that destiny is determined by a decision that is made in this life, not the next. A decision that is made in this life. Luke chapter 16, the rich man would have loved to have had a second pass, but he doesn't get one. Men are stuck with the decision they make when they reach the judgment seat of our Lord. And they will spend eternity based upon the choice they have made in this life. Those who decline heaven are destined for hell. And I think it was Mark Twain that said that, wasn't it? Everyone talking about heaven isn't necessarily going there. The sad tragedy is 
There are, there are all too many people who really think they're going to heaven and they're not. Because their view of heaven and their view of how man gets there does not square with God's. Satan would love nothing more than to deceive someone into thinking they're going to heaven when they're going to hell. Jesus threw the bomb right into the midst when he says to the crowd in Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. And what that means is, if the guys who were the most religious, scrupulous people on the block weren't going to get there by their works, you're not going to get there with yours either. There's only one way you get to heaven, and that's through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I say to you, when we talk about heaven, can I give you an autographed invitation, (laughs) as it were? God invites us to enjoy eternity with him based upon his work as the Lord Jesus Christ bore the penalty for sin and rebellion and as he offers to us the righteousness that is required for all of eternity to enjoy fellowship with him trust in him trust in him not in your works that's the way to heaven and that's the best news there is. Father, we thank you for this account of uh, you walking in intimate fellowship with Adam and Eve. What a joy it is to realize that for every believer, something better is coming. May we look forward to that day, and may we live our lives as strangers and pilgrims, knowing this is not our home. For any who might be here who are unsure of where they will spend eternity, may you convict them of their sin. May you show them that Christ is the only provision through his sacrifice at Calvary. He died the death that we deserve, and he offers to us the life that we lost. May we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.